One of my students is listening. Which one? Pragya. Okay. Shout out to your student. Yeah. Hey, Pragya. Hope you're listening. This one's for you. Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why they put the television on airplanes in the seat back. Where as, would you prefer it? To- I have no idea, but I feel like I spend the entire flight having people push the seat back all the way from Boston to Johannesburg, well, I suppose it's uh, Atlanta to Johannesburg, and having my head bobbing up and down. You don't experience this? Yeah, sure. You have to talk into the microphone, I Chris. <laughs> I do. I, it just seems to me there has to be another design. They used to have the, the handle, the, the, the remote control thing, whatever that was connected, like they do with the bank with the pens. Um, but I don't know. Anyway. Are you, are you worried about the, the screen? The no, touch think, screen and there's the little kid behind you going tap, 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 tap. That is Banging on the back of your seat the whole way, trying to change the channels or play some video game. If it was a little kid, I would be more forgiving, but it's usually a grown gentleman with a hefty push button finger. Uh-huh. That's what it usually is. And I cannot sleep all the way. Anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here with Chris Gill from the Departments of Global Health. Hello. And Jennifer Ryder from the Department of Epidemiology. It's nice to know that the Departments of Global Health are no plural. Yeah, I I did. Uh, do, you me, do, you me, do you want me to redo that? No, no, that I, I like enough? it. I think it sounds more important there this are way. Two, apparently there are two Departments of Global Health now. Right, and they merged. Did, 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 you know that, uh, did you know that there's someone else here with us? Yes, yes. Dr. Jennifer Ryder. Hello, there you go. There. Hello. 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 Wow. And we are, as so, always, I keep forgetting to say that we are in the Godly studio. So I find this very ironic what that there's find? two of you from the the singular Department of Epidemiology, and there's one of me from the Departments of Global Health. I think yeah. that just tells it all. <laughs> I, I hear you. Um, okay, so I'm going to do something different this time. I'm not going to talk about the Population Health Exchange website, which you should absolutely go to. Instead, I'm going to tell people. I, th- I heard they took it down. For No, they didn't. That is a lie. <laughs> I'm going to tell people content or that something. we in the department or departments of global health have are starting a new master's degree program in population health research. Chris, tell us all about it. Yes. So I was actually on the, on the committee along with Dr. Jennifer Ryder. That's right. And we it is our our fault that this is happening. <laughs> Thank you. And it is going to be great. When does it uh, start? This coming September will and be the first cohort, and they are accepting applications as we speak. And so this is a, a master's of science, not a master's of public health. Correct. This is a master's of science. It is, it is, it is, its goal is to teach young, talented, young wannabe researchers how to do research at a master's level. Young, talented, young. Okay. So uh, go ahead and, and uh, go you to you want the to say website. About it? Uh, no, I think you covered it. I think, you know, young being the, the focus here. <laughs> very, very young. <laughs> <laughs> This is a preschool program, apparently. Okay. Get them young. Pre-K. We're going to teach them Yeah. Doesn't take much. Right. Okay, now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which it's is It's like our- when we're teaching them all about how to be safe crossing, crossing the street. We're going to tell them about relative risks. Mm-hmm. It's so kind of the same thing. 
So now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to be talking about whether smartwatches can be used to detect atrial fibrillation. A word, by the way, that I cannot say. We know I have a long history of, of butchering words. This is going to be one I'm going to do a lot. Oh, but you just did it. Fibril- fibrillation? Fibrillation. Fibrillation. Fibr- fibr- it's the br part that screws me up. The, sort of the Scottish part? Fibrillation, fibrillation, fibrillation. fibrillation like whatever. fibrils. Fibrils, whatever those are. Little tiny strands. Okay. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about whether we should restrict ourselves and we should restrict researchers to publishing one paper per year. Chris, Chris, you want to give us the, the well, spoiler on that one? Well, I think one? we are going to we're going to take a, take this actively and sincerely, and we're going to only review one paper a year. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a really great idea. The rest of the time, we'll just talk. And then in our amazing and amusing, we are going to talk about things that make us laugh out loud. Or it is Chris's turn to bring us all presents. Oh shit! Yeah. Did we not mention that? I got some pens in my bag. Excellent. <laughs> so we're going to talk about an article which looked at whether smartwatches can be used, and I should probably say Apple smartwatches can be used to detect atrial fibrillation and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it was entitled large scale assessment of a smartwatch to identify atrial fibrillation by first author Marco Perez of the division of cardiovascular medicine at Stanford University and I will give you some headlines on this one so CNBC says Apple heart study shows a lot of promise for digital health but cardiologists still have questions Which ones? I don't know. CNN says, what Apple Watch can teach you about your heart. Hmm. New York Times says, Apple reshapes medical research. No, 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 no. Did someone actually say that? Apple reshapes medical research. Goodness Uh, Yahoo News. Here's how well that Apple Watch can detect heart problems. The Seattle Times, which of course I picked because that is... Microsoft land. Microsoft land. Apple's reach and apps reshape medical research. Hundreds of thousands volunteer for studies. That was the only one that sort of got into the size of this particular study. An unprecedented study suggests that Apple Watch can help detect heart problems, but very few people actually used it to do that, says Business Insider, which I thought was also a pretty interesting take on it. So, Jen, can you start by giving us the rundown of what the study found? And and as part of that, can you tell us, uh, they use some measures that we haven't talked a lot about. We have talked a little bit about, like positive predictive value. So if you can tell us what those are all about. Absolutely. We would, the, the listener would really appreciate that. It's not that I don't know. <laughs> Prague, yeah, we're talking to you. <laughs> Okay. So before reading the study, I admit I knew very little to nothing about, about, atrial, <laughs> about atrial fibrillation. I know that I have a smartwatch and don't wear it because I, all that monitoring, it, it bothers me. Yeah. It bothers me. Yeah. Anyway, atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, so in this study, they considered both of those things AFib, affects about 6 million people in the U.S., In fact, the lifetime risk for AFib is about one in three. And this is important because patients with AFib have five times the risk of stroke. AFib can be difficult to diagnose in part because there tend to be very few symptoms, but also electrocardiograms, ECGs, may actually be completely normal between the AFib episodes, so it can be easy to miss. So these authors um, state that up to 700,000 people in the U.S. could actually have undiagnosed AFib. The traditional strategies for diagnosing it or detecting it include uh, continuous heart monitors or implantable devices that are either invasive or uh, require the user to, to activate them. So 
Now we have smartwatches, which um, already measure your pulse using optical sensors. And so taking that a step farther, there is an Apple Watch application that uses this intermittent passively detected pulse rate data to identify episodes that are consistent with, with AFib. So this study is the Apple Heart Study. Mm -hmm. It is described by the authors as a sightless, pragmatic trial, but there's really nothing that I think of as trial-like about this study because it is a single-group, open-label study. I do think we should talk about that at some point. Okay, yep. great. I think someone coached them that pragmatic is the word you use these days. It, it's hot. It's hot. Yep. So Apple sponsored the study, but all of the data were stored and analyzed at Stanford University. In order to participate in this study, you needed to have an iPhone and an Apple Watch. So they did not provide the equipment. Um, you had to be 22 years or older, be a U.S. resident, and speak English. And they also required that participants not have any prior AFib or be currently using oral anticoagulation agents. But all of this information was self-reported through the app after after a participant downloaded that app. And through the app, they also signed, um, provided electronic informed consent. So the app was available for download from the Apple Store in the U.S. from November 29th, 2017 to August 1st, 2018. There was an irregular pulse notification algorithm that was activated through the app following obtaining informed consent. And this sensor on the Apple Watch uses light-emitting and light-sensitive diodes to detect changes in blood flow during periods of rest. So mm -hmm. that's how it works. In addition, there were signals used to generate pulse intervals called tachograms uh, over one-minute in intervals, which were then used to classify a person's pulses, regular or irregular. If a participant was found to have an irregular pulse, they were prompted to, to initiate a telemedicine visit. And then all subsequent tachygrams and notifications were recorded by the app, but the participant didn't receive any feedback on those. The notification feature was deactivated after September 1st, 2018, meaning that participants were enrolled for a minimum of a, of a month. Any urgent symptoms that were detected were um, the participant was referred to urgent care clinics or emergency departments, but patients with non-urgent symptoms were then mailed an ECG patch that they could wear for up to seven days. The participants were then instructed to return these ECG patches by mail, and then they were, they were reviewed by first trained technicians to identify any serious problems, and then uh, subsequently reviewed by two clinicians with a process in place to adjudicate any kind of discrepant results. One of the outcomes required that they had these time-aligned three-minute ECG strips and tachygrams so that they could relate those, those two outcomes. And then all participants were recommended to receive a second telemedicine visit to actually re review their ECG findings. There were also some surveys. So all of the patients who received an irregular pulse notification were asked to complete a survey 90 days after that event. And then all participants in the study were asked to complete an end of study survey. 
So in terms of the outcomes they were looking at, so there were two primary outcomes. First of all, AFib of greater than 30 seconds on the ECG patch monitoring in a participant who had previously received uh, an irregular pulse notification. So that's the first one. The second is concurrent AFib on both the ECG patch monitoring during the intervals when the participant also had an irregular tachygram. Mm -hmm. And then there were some secondary endpoints. So they looked at whether or not there was concurrent AFib on the ECG patch monitoring when the pulse notification algorithm detected an irregular pulse. And then finally, whether or not the participant contacted a healthcare provider within three months after receiving an irregular pulse notification. So these investigators through the app were able to recruit 419,000 297 participants over this eight-month period. They came from all 50 states and Washington, D.C. There was a median of 117 days of monitoring time with the, with the app. Of those 400 and some thousand participants, 2,161, or 0.52%, received notifications about having an irregular pulse. It was a bit higher, 3.1% in those 65 uh, years and older. Those who received a notification tended to be older, male, white, and have higher score on this instrument that measures risk of stroke among those with AFib. Of the 2161 who received the positive irregular pulse notification, 450 returned an ECG patch that had analyzable data. On average, those patients wore their ECG patch for 6.3 days, and it was indicative of AFib in 34% of the participants overall and 35% among those uh, age 65 and older. Only 18% of those with um, who were aged uh, 40 or less. There were 20 participants who were urgently contacted. 18 of these had pretty serious AFib, so ventricular rates of greater than 200 beats per minute for more than three seconds. Of the 2,089 irregular tachograms that were sampled, 1,480 showed simultaneous AFib on the ECG patch. So that is consistent, according to the authors, of a positive predictive value of 0.71 overall. 0.71, 71 71%. It's a funny way to describe it, isn't it? 0.71. Yeah. So so should we go through what a positive predictive value is now? I think it would help. Okay. So, you know, everyone's heard about sensitivity and specificity. There, the denominator is who truly has disease. In order to measure those, you really need information on you need gold standard information on who has disease. Positive predictive value, there your denominator is of those who test positive. So they're saying that of those who tested positive, 71% actually had evidence of bona fide AFib. So 71% of those whose watch signaled to them that they had AFib or had an irregular pulse. Exactly. Um, During, During the period of EKG patch monitoring, there was seventy-one percent concordance between an abnormal tachygram so this and the one EKG is, saying, "Yeah, it's AFib." Exactly. So this one is a re- relating the irregular tachygram to the irregular pulse notification on the app at, during the same time period. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so 86 patients had irregular pulse notifications during use of the ECG patch, and 72 of those showed evidence of AFib according to the ECG. So that relates to a positive predictive value of 0.84. And both of these positive predictive values, somewhat unusually, are lower in those who are 65 years and older. And it's something we can talk about more, but so unlike sensitivity and specificity, positive predictive values and negative predictive values are influenced by the prevalence of the disease in the population. Mm. The PPV goes up with increasing prevalence and then negative predictive value goes down with increasing prevalence. So it's a little, it's strange to me that it goes down in older people where you would expect AFib to be more common. It seems to be theoretically possible only in the scenario where sensitivity and specificity change by age. Which So that must be what's going on. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, that is all I can assume because we don't have enough information. Yeah. And they do, I think in the discussion, they provide some theories about how that could ha- how it could be d- more difficult to detect in younger people where it's in an earlier stage of disease, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So 76% of those who had an irregular pulse notification contacted either a study doctor, an outside healthcare provider, or both. So there was quite a bit of contact um, with medical professionals following these notifications. Of those... 2161 participants with an irregular pulse notification, 64% returned the 90-day survey, of whom 57% had actually sought out healthcare uh, due to the notification, and then 28% of them were put on uh, new recommendations, about a third were recommended to some kind of specialist provider, and 36 were recommended more testing. 43% of those participants with an irregular pulse notification returned the end-of-study survey. Of those without any type of notification, so the vast majority of the participants in this study, 70% did actually return the end-of-study survey, which I thought was actually quite impressive since there was no other real engagement by, right. these, by these folks. 44% of those who were notified about an irregular pulse ended up receiving a new diagnosis of AFib, where it was only 1% in those who didn't receive any kind of notification. And those who were notified were more likely to start either anticoagulant therapy or aspirin or undergo some procedure for their AFib. There were 16 adverse events found to be actually related to the app, of which 15 were anxiety-related. hmm Mm-hmm. Okay. Chris, give us your take on this study. And before you do, please tell us whether you own stock in Apple or own any Apple-related products. Yes. Or have ever eaten an Apple. I, I love apples, and I own one, two, three, four Mac devices plus an iPhone. I'm, I'm roughly in the same yeah. yeah. Yep. Also. Okay. So we all have conflicts of interest. So yeah. why don't we just end this now? I, I totally, I totally like Mac computers. Okay. Apple computers. Anyone own a smartwatch? Do you, do you look like got, you've this, got an Apple this watch? This is an iWatch right here. So that's iWatch. iWatch. Is that what it's called? It's, it's an, an Apple watch. watch. Apple watch. iWatch. Yeah. I Apple own watch. one. I do not wear it. Uh huh. Okay. Um, I, I do. I don't own an iWatch. Uh, I'm, I'm, I recently I'm found that thing, I can I can watch. set up my watch for two factor uh, verification so that I can automatically open my laptop without typing in the password. Oh, that's pretty nice. Or that's you could just get handy. a new laptop with the little with the little with touch. The fingerprint reader. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's true. Okay. <laughs> but I'm all about ears, as people know. Um, so you might want to explain that. I'll I'll bring I'll come back to that on okay, a future good, episode. Good. 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 Uh, I thought this was interesting. It was very interesting. I 
felt at the end that this was sort of like a, a kind of a so what because you're talking about screening 400,000 people to detect how many new diagnoses of AFib? Hold on. 43. So... Uh, among, well, so sort of. I mean, sort of. among those that, that return the information, although you could say... Right, but this is pragmatic. If they don't and return so this the information is where the pragmatic bit bites you because this is real life, guys. So that's, the, you know, we can't yeah, win I, and I lose dispute. by pragmatism here. So the pragmatic result is that you detected almost no cases statistically of new AFib. 43 cases out of 400,000 people screened for a median uh, of 119 days. I, I think that's pretty, that that's pretty low yield. It's, it's, it, it, this to me falls in the well, same general bucket of like, should we do an annual CAT scan on everybody? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Just I'm looking gonna, for stuff. I am going to disagree with you on that one because, and I'm not saying that I support use of this, but these are people who have this device anyway. Already. Okay, right. all right. But that is that is Apple's like interesting argument here, which is basically a pitch to sell more Apple watches. Sure, sure, sure. Right? sure. I'm not discounting that like, at all. You want to know the time. Wouldn't you know if you could have a stroke too? <laughs> right, right. You can't which do that with a Timex. Right. I mean, come on. You know. No, no, no. But I'm saying if you own one of the, you, you currently own one of these devices. Right. If that device could tell you. With a pro- with, positive with predictive value out of, of 400,000. Not out of those with a positive VKG, but just like the positive predictive value of, or you see the proportional probability of me finding AFib through this thing would be one in a very small number. But that, but who cares? Big as long as I mean, who cares what the the number is? As long as you find some and it is harmless. I'm not saying it is, but let's say it were. Ah, no. So that gets me to my second point, which is that. Wait, you, wait, know, you the, didn't answer my first point. My first point. What was your first point? Well, I'm just saying, if it were harmless, you you now want to say it's not harmless. But which I'm, I'm going to argue it's not. No, no, I'm saying, but let's say it okay. were, this is just a device that people have on their arms that has the potential to, you know, detect atrial fibrillation, something that we think is serious. Why wouldn't we want to do that given who cares what the yield is if it gives us, you know, 10 more people who are alive because of it? In a very passive way. In a very passive way. Well, first of all, yes. they haven't shown that it saved any lives. No, no, I agree. Okay. So there's another kind of interesting metric there out of 400,000 people screens, they cannot demonstrate that actually a single life was saved, let alone impacted in a positive way. We don't know that. Right. Right. And yes, there were a couple of individuals who had diagnoses that resulted in the screening, the notification subgroup. But, you know, 30 people with congestive heart failure, for example, they would have been diagnosed eventually. And the mm-hmm. watch is not picking them up as congestive heart failure. So, I mean, to me, the argument seems very weak. Now, the 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 you know the the complicating part of this is that the the statistic that Jennifer showed you know quoted at the beginning that that there's a fivefold increased risk of stroke if you have atrial fibrillation is true when we're talking about classical atrial fibrillation populations, that is to say patients who generally have advanced age and cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis and develop atrial fibrillation, they are at very high risk of having a stroke. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about the routine population. So now we're adding in this screening thing on an undifferentiated population. And we cannot assume that the detection of atrial fibrillation means the same thing in these people as it does in, as in people who presented symptomatically with atrial fibrillation. It's apples and oranges in my view. Sure. And the thing about atrial fibrillation uh-huh. is that it comes and goes. And this is, this to me feels like an example of if you, sh- if you look, you will find. And so to my mind, what we have found is that probably irrelevant atrial fibrillation is very common. 
Oh, and what should okay. we do about so that's... it? Possibly nothing, because nothing happened to these people that, that, as far as has been reported. Has been reported. I mean, I don't know this follow-up data to really be able to say, but right. but I think you make a point that that I can't, I certainly can't dispute because I don't understand the the... Right. What is the what is the counterfactual? What would have happened to these individuals had we not identified this transient episode of atrial fibrillation that, for the most part, occurred within the first forty days of wiring the watch? So if they're going to find it, they're going to find it early. If they don't find it in a hundred days, they basically don't find it at all. So very short duration. They're picking up this signal, and yet we actually, truly, medically, don't know what it means Mm -hmm. because now we're looking at a totally different spectrum of the population of individuals with atrial fibrillation. And it may turn out that a large number of people have transient atrial fibrillation and it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. We just Mm -hmm. don't know. Mm -hmm. So like, what is the action item here? And I think that's why they're so coy in the discussion section about saying that they cannot assert any medical significance to this. They're being honest. They can't. Okay. So then why is this a New England Journal of Medicine paper? Because it's so... Interesting, <laughs> even though un, on some level unsatisfying. It's very novel. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I, I'm surprised that this is a, a New England paper. Other than the achievement of recruiting, you know, 400 and some thousand people over an eight month period, you know, but only a couple thousand of those, you know, contributed real data to the study. Yeah, I was I was a bit I was a bit surprised. I was as well. Can I can I read this this a little bit from this paragraph in the discussion? You can you may enter that into I the record. Enter it into the record. What what, what do they call this at the, at the uh, uh, a, a unanimous consent unanimous decree? Unanimous consent decree. Right. Okay. No, without objection. Without objection. Thank without you. Objection. Thank you. Uh, you may enter it into Chairman the record. Nadler. So he says here. Furthermore, the algorithm <laughs> is not designed to detect short episodes of atrial fibrillation, and participants with a low burden of atrial fibrillation could have been missed. The study objective was not to address the use of the Apple Watch as a population screening tool, which seems hard to imagine because that is exactly what they uh, did. Well, Otherwise, why is it a New England Journal paper, right? If it's not. Patients using this technology should be aware that the absence of an irregular pulse notification does not exclude possibly arrhythmias. Okay, so this is where I want to go next. Conversely, notification based on an irregular pulse from a photoplethysmography signal should not be used for a definitive diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And since rhythm detection technologies are rapidly evolving, additional studies using features such as wearable EKG monitorings will need to be performed as the technology becomes available. Nevertheless, uncertainty remains about the benefits of diagnosing and treating ACE symptomatic atrial fibrillation, particularly in persons whose episodes of atrial fibrillation are of less than six hours duration. Sorry, what? So all of that is basically a a, a long, complicated sort of legalistic disclaimer saying, this is not a test. Don't trust the results, positive or negative. You can't can't believe any of it. (laughs) And yet, hint, hint, so tantalizing. What, the, the, you, you made a motion with your fingers there. Was that the money? That's the, that's the tantalizing, right? The clicking of coins. <laughs> clink, 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 clink. Right? This could be big or not. Yeah. I, so, so okay. So let me go into the, the issue that you just raised, which is they this entire paper is predicated on, and I don't understand why, positive predictive value and something they called yield, which mm-hmm. I, to be honest, I, I struggled to even follow what yield means. That's a sign by a highway. That is. Yield and merge. Right. Yeah. But I don't think that's what they're getting at here. I don't think that's Generally, the they don't have the signs in the same place. No, they don't. <laughs> positive predictive value, as Jen, you defined, takes the total number of, of people for whom there is a, a signal on the, on the watch, right? Correct. As the denominator. Correct. If that's the case, and I'm not 
totally convinced that's the case. But if that's the case, as you said, positive predictive value, as with negative predictive value, is a function of the sensitivity and specificity. So the, the, the measures describing how well the watch performs when you use the truth as the denominator. Do you really have atrial fibrillation or not? Something that is never... We don't know here because nobody who didn't get a signal ever had a test to determine whether or not they actually had atrial fibrillation. So we don't know that. This is an A and C cell. So Chris, the microphone's this over here. This is an A and C cell epidemiology. A and C cell. Well, depending on how you rearrange yeah, your table. Yeah, it depends on how you table. put your letters. Some right. people would say it's an A and B cell. <laughs> or maybe it is. It depends. Anyway, let's not try and do that on a podcast. But let's let me just say that... So it depends on sensitivity and specificity, but it, positive predictive value also depends on prevalence. Correct. And we know that prevalence is low. In fact, they tell us. And so we know we know enough information to make some guesses here. So I did this. They say that the prevalence of atrial fibrillation is about 0.1%. That's pretty low. You don't generally screen for things in populations that are that low because you generally have, even with a good test, more false positives than true positives. So I worked this out. We know that there are 419,000 people in the study. Even if you had an incredibly good, if this, this watch is amazing, such that you get 99.9% .9 sensitivity and 99.9% .9 specificity, meaning nearly perfect. Of all the true positives, 99% 99.9% of them get classified as true as positive mm -hmm. and all the true negatives, 99.9% .9 of them get classified as true negatives. Because this is so rare, you still only get 50% positive predictive value, and I don't believe hmm. that the sensitivity and specificity are 99.9% .9 for this thing. Not a chance. So the math either doesn't either the math doesn't work out or I'm misunderstanding what they mean. By who's in the who's Where did in the study you get for the, positive predictive the value? The prevalence of point one. They, I thought they said it in there, but even if it was one percent, so if it was one percent, then you would get a positive predictive value of sixty-six percent. If the sensitivity was ninety-nine point five percent, specificity was point nine nine, so ninety-nine percent. So I, I, something doesn't seem right to me. In, in it, when when prevalence of these conditions is so low and you screen for them, positive predictive value tends to be low unless your test is just absolutely amazing with respect to specificity. In other words, you're not having any false positive or many false positives. And I just don't buy that so, this test wouldn't be picking up false positives. But keep in mind that they are, they've already pre-selected the sub-cohort of people who have an irregular pulse. And then it's only it, it, among that group of people that they're relating, you know, concurrent right. tachygram issues to having AFib on the ECG. So they're already a higher risk group. So, I, it, so right. my point is, it wouldn't be point one so or one percent in those people. It would be much higher because you've already pre-selected them for being at risk. Okay, right. so that it's answer, the high prevalence group, that's a subset. Exactly. And so right. that answers my question, which is, do I am I misunderstanding? Because it does say positive predictive value of tachygram, right. not but, exactly. But I don't. But but again, what what value is that number then? That all that says is I, I among the people who got a signal, then 
I don't even really know what that number means. That's not the relevant number. The relevant number is if the, cause, cause in real life, I'm going to have wearing the watch and it's going to go off and it's going to tell me, go see a doctor. I want to know how good is that number? Exactly. Right. And we don't, we don't have that's that number. Not, okay. Yeah. Cause if you're right, and I think you are, that number that I need is not in here. I mean, what the closest thing to, that they get to that number is this yield issue, right? And what and was the yield? It's just the percentage of people of those who had an irregular pulse notification, what percentage of them had evidence of AFib on the ECG? And what was that number? But but again, but that's not concurrent. 34%? That, yeah. 34% overall. But again, that's not concurrent. That's It doesn't relate at all to that specific episode. Um, it's just saying now when you select these people out, you know, if we follow them with ECG, how many of them will have evidence of AFib? So, so now, it's still not exactly what you yeah. want. Okay. So, I mean, and it seems to me they could have given me what I want. I am curious as to why, because they had that data, only for positive predictive value. They don't have data for sensitivity, specificity, or negative predictive value. But I'm just curious, why Why did a reviewer not insist on that information? That mm-hmm. would be, unless that's what yield is, and I'm just not understanding. But I don't think that's what yield is. Well, I, I think it gets back to the lawyers, personally, that the, the Apple people here are very anxious I, I, not to I, be I, making the claim that an Apple Watch is an FDA approved a device for detection of atrial fibrillation because if that were the that case they would they have to report yank positive. A, they would have to you know kill that app quick quick no i agree but that doesn't mean they couldn't <laughs> so, report a, a real positive predictive value but, but but that gets to a second question which is should we treat apple here the way that we would treat a drug company in a drug study yes they have a conflict of interest here they are promoting this concept that your wearable device is intimately connected to every aspect of your life, including your physical health. And that is a bold assertion for them to make. If the positive predictive value was terrible, would they have reported this to us? No. I, I think no. And also they reported a positive predictive value. That, that isn't the positive predictive value. That right. we want to know. Right. I mean, the positive predictive value we, we all learned in, in, in Epi 101 is such a squishy statistic because it's so sensitive to prevalence. So we're all like nervous about it because it's contextual and like the context is always shifting. And so you never really know, well, which positive predictive value applies to me now today, you know, that's the problem. And so that they've gone for the squishy statistic as opposed to the sensitivity and specificity, which are touted to be insensitive to prevalence. Yeah, That's I mean, their they're advantage. Not, they're insensitive to prevalence. They can vary across populations, as we would think here. They're probably, I do think that, that you could see a case where the specificity in particular is going to vary by age because sure. you have more other things that might set off a false positive as you get older. Yeah. So I could see that. I could see the specificity in particular changing. Yeah. Could I could yes. I raise a couple of things? So first of all, you know, we talk a lot about sort of big data and that what that does to the quality of the data. But I think this Nothing. this is an interesting example of what you sacrifice in terms of what you can measure, what you yeah. know, the outcomes that you can report. And I think that's talked about a little less. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is I am usually one to poo-poo criticisms <laughs> about generalizability, mm-hmm. but now I'm going to be that person. Full, you're going Please. full, full generalizability. Let's hear, <laughs> Let's hear. Is this your first ever rant? Maybe. Go on, go. Take so it. This is a study of people who already own Apple Watches. Uh-huh. And, you know, they find that, you know, those with uh, uh, an irregular pulse notification are more likely to be, you know, white and male. And I don't think you can make anything from that because the you know it is a very selected group of 
Apple Watch owners. You know, and I worry a little bit about, you know, if if this is going to become the study population, you know, what that really does do to disparity gap. I mean, we are leaving out most people. They are not represented here. And there's no discussion of of that. I mean, they, they might say, you know, maybe they give it a sentence or something in the discussion. But but I think it's a huge flaw of of the study and, and the paper. Do you think that the reason why you care about generalizability here is because it's not, there's no, this is not a study estimating an effect. No, this it's is a study describing the characteristics of the watch. Therefore, it's supposed to somehow apply to a larger population. And I, mean, I assume, I mean, did they develop this algorithm for detecting a regular pulse based on, you know, mostly white men? You know, then it's no yeah. mystery why it does a better job in detecting arrhythmias in white men. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think I think that deserved to be a, a limitation that was discussed a little more. I agree with you. Uh, so one more thing. I do, or two more things. I do think this is a trial. I still oh. think it's a trial. Even It's not a randomized trial. But it is still a single, you know, a single arm, I guess you could say, intervention for an untested, you know, product for which they want to evaluate it. I, that's still a trial, even though it's not a controlled, it's not a randomized, nor is it a controlled trial. I still think it's a trial. Well, if that's the case, and if we're if we're really taking them at their word that this was pragmatic, I feel a little bit cheated that they didn't give us the statistics, the sensitivity and specificity using I you were the four hundred thousand subjects as the denominator. I thought you were going to say you feel cheated. They didn't give us a watch. Uh, well, that too. Some we should we should get more than a watch. But, Obviously. Um, I don't know. I, I, feel I don't, like, think, I, feel like I don't they, think anyone's going to be mailing these watches after no, this. No, I don't think so either. No. I think they dodged the opportunity to, to be more fair. And I, the truth is that, you know, with detection of 43 cases of atrial fibrillation out of 400,000 people, if that was their, you know, source population in this pragmatic trial, yep. the sensitivity would have been rather low, I, shall I, we say. I don't know if it would have been low, but I think the, the positive predictive value. 43 out of 400,000 yeah. is pretty low. That's the, that's the prevalence. Uh, Sensitivity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, because it also they they do report no, no, that no. in the non the non notification group there were three thousand and seventy cases of atrial fibrillation newly diagnosed during the same period, and so the Apple Watch only picked out forty picked up forty three compared with three thousand. Well, it was a much no, but it was a much smaller group. You can't p- compare the actual numbers. I'm I'm just saying that because the other group had like three hundred you know four hundred thousand people in it. But it, yeah, but, it, but no, but but I, I so I agree. With both of you in the sense that you're, as a percentage, you're probably right. But your point is, in absolute numbers, if I'm wearing this watch, you know, chances are pretty low that I'm actually going to be, my atrial fibrillation is going to be picked up by this thing. Right. A hundred to one, approximately. That, huh. that, that Interesting. You would, your doctor would have spotted it before the watch did. Huh. That's what these data show. And had they analyzed it with the full denominators of the population, that's what their sensitivity and specificity would have shown. All right. I have so much more that I could actually say about this, but unfortunately we have to move on. I do want to point out one last thing, which is that, did you notice that they calculated a 97.5% I did. confidence interval, but only for one thing. For the other <laughs> one, they did a 95%. So what's that all about? I call that sneaky. It's very That's pragmatic. That's sneaky. It's just weird. All right. So let's move on. And I, I'm not even going to do an introduction to this other than to say, okay. So we're, we're in our second segment, we're talking about an article that was, it was published in uh, Trends in Cognitive Science. So we read an article about the article. I don't know if you all read the actual article, but it just, I don't, we get the basic idea from the article and it's by Uta Frith, Professor Uta Frith, I believe, entitled Fast Lane 
to slow science. So she's the former president of the British Science Association, has suggested a radical proposal, I'm quoting here, a radical proposal to the problem of bad science, too much science, etc. Problems that we're essentially talking about on this podcast, not every week, because of course we talk about lots of good studies too. But And her solution to the problem is just have people publish one paper per year. And that that would be a solution to this problem of having too much science and too much bad science. And I'm not I'm not even going to go into the, the details of the justification so much as let's just take it on face value. If we were to go to a system where we were to only publish one paper for a year, so you had all this time to focus your creativity, research, energy, effort, and et sure. cetera. We'd have infinite time because we'd all be fired. We'd have <laughs> lots of time, assuming, assuming our university were to sign on to it. So let's just start there because we'll come back to the realities of it. But let's just start there and say if it were, if it were actually feasible that we could, we could you know, advance our careers, we could you know, do all the things we're supposed to do as, as, as professors, but we had lots of time to ruminate on our findings and only publish the best possible finding, would that make science better? Go. Yes. How? I, I mean, I love this idea. And I know, I mean, oh. she describes it in the article as utopian, and I agree, it's never going to happen, but I love it. I feel like it would solve many of my complaints and problems with how we disseminate scientific results. It would solve the problem of splitting up your results into a million salami little pieces. Salami slicing. It would solve the problem of there are these people who have made their careers on churning out, you know, like apply the the same exposure to 20 different diseases or they're, or, you know, using publicly available databases for things they should never, ever be used for. The many perils of asparagus. Exactly. <laughs> and I think we all can, you know, are there papers in mind that the world could have lived without? Absolutely. And just to get rid of all of that kind of junk and, and background noise, I think would, uh, would make everyone's lives better. Chris? So I, you know, I think, I think Uta Frith is being very tongue in cheek here and is, is just being provocative. So I don't, I'm not going to take her literally. You're not taking the bait. I, I took her very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm taking her, her seriously so much as she's, she's complaining that we are publishing too much chaff and, and that I totally agree with you. Yeah, we are. And, but, but, but hang on, do we but, know? But, oh, but the, the, no, the, the thing where, where, where I kind of like said, wait a minute, I think, I think this is maybe bordering on insanity here, not just hereticism. <laughs> but um, it I'm was, not going to take that personally. Um, no, 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 not you. <laughs> uh, uh, and by the way, it was Uta Frith, was she in the third Harry Potter movie? I do not know. <laughs> the industry. Anyway, she says, you know, one of the things that we would see is information uh, overload, where in the future, the medical literature is swelled. This is, quote, swelled in the future by reports of null results and replication failures. Now, wait a minute. This is like what we have been proselytizing about is the need to publish those null results and, and replicate findings or show that there are replication failures. I mean, isn't that really the problem with the medical literature is that it is, it is swelled with not just chaff, but also with misleading publications 
confrontation biased chaff that overstates things. And to just say, let's get rid of those null reports and replication failures is doing actually a tremendous disservice. So I you would want say. more publications, I not less. I want journals of irreproducible results. No, you don't. You want journals of null results. Well, isn't that the same thing? No. Uh, like, you not know, at all. The, the journal of, of previously is highly touted and apparently false claims. The journal of things we already knew. Oh, the journal of things that were claimed to be true and have apparently turned out to be <laughs> oh, not quite oh, so oh, true. Sorry, by irreproducible, you mean I by cannot power produ- poses, reproduce right? somebody power else's. Power poses, right. So let's, let's I don't think that's what take the, those down. You know? That generally refers to. So. But, but I also think, I, I think these those two things are actually consistent because I think that you know, there is in in some ways there's a higher bar for null studies because you have the burden to show that it wasn't just your crummy study that produced the null result that you know it True. really is it's null for a good reason, and and that requires you know to to do that well. I think you would do follow up studies, at, but but no one has the time for that, right? right? And or so you just move on. And so I think well, if you okay. if you were if you did have an allotment of one blockbuster study a year, maybe that is the approach that you would you would do. Maybe we would have better null studies. That's that's actually an interesting point. So so are you saying then if I had one study, mm-hmm. it, it would it would not be really just a single study. No. Essentially what I would do is I would say, okay, I've got this cohort that I've set up to analyze, you know, the relationship between asparagus and whatever, and I find something, but I'm not just going to publish that. I'm also going to go and say, okay, now I'm going to find another group and we're going to collaborate to see if in their cohort they see it. And then we find a third group. And now we've got essentially three different, it's not an experiment because they're observational studies, but you know, sort of like three different replications of the same thing that I'm all going to publish together as opposed to just publishing mine and you publish yours. We would have to really uh, think more clearly. And maybe we do some validation studies no, with and, it and all is, that sort of stuff. I we think it's focus. borrowing from, I mean, this is That's what basic scientists do, right? right? Like right. they don't just, you know, look at their 12 mice and say, game over. I mean, they're telling a complete story based on a lot of different sources of data. And I think we could do a better job of that as well. But there are these pressures to to publish more that, that get in the way of that. I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it quite in that way. I don't know that limiting us to one paper per year is going to be w- right. would necessarily force that. I mean, I think, but not encouraging us to publish a hundred papers a year. Absolutely, would, but yeah. but I mean, it, it seems to me in some way what it would do is it would just allow certain people who who are not generally doing very good science to publish one paper for a year and just kind of continue doing that. But it would be easier to weed out those people if they only had one crummy paper a year. Right. right? One paper and it's crummy. That's, that's certainly when you were evaluating, (laughs) if you were evaluating professors, you would actually then, instead of just looking at the number of publications and where they were published, you'd actually go and read the paper. Yeah. You only have to read one. Right. You look at the Kardashian index. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's interesting. I don't think this would solve the problem, but I, I, I'm that. That's an interesting take on it that I hadn't thought of. I, I worry also that if we have fewer papers to write, that we're going to spend a lot more time in committee meetings, mm. and that that would just be the end of my career. So, so the way that it works is the way. I, I mean, I don't know if you read the 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 footnotes in her proposal, but in the footnote, so you would you would only publish one paper per year, but your the rest of your time would be supplemented with doodle polls. You'd spend the rest of your time. <laughs> Going to meetings, having or to fill refusing out, to go to no, meetings, no, having to fill out doodle polls for meetings at some unspecified time <laughs> in the future. Okay, so sounds that like was, a dystopian future of science. That, I would like to read that novel. Yes. I would like to read 
<laughs> that dystopian novel. Okay, so let's move on to our last segment. Uh, which 2084. Is 2084, <laughs> right. a world in which everyone's, there is no meaningful work. There are only doodle poles. Right. Okay, so last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Who I'm going to leave it up to you guys. Who's going first this time? I'll go first. All right. Okay, so this is a story that was covered in The Atlantic a few months ago, but I haven't had the opportunity to chat about it until Mm. until now. And I was really surprised and disappointed to hear this. But basically, there is an example of sex bias that has just has gone completely kind of flown under the radar for me. And that's in museum collections at your natural history museum. I, I found this paper me, too. Me, meaning, so interesting. Meaning there are I more totally agree with you. male yeah. uh, Most uh, of fossils? The fossils and, you know, whole preserved stuffed, stuffed, stuffed bison. True, exactly. True. Oh, for animals as well as people. As well as people? Animals. Animals, animals as animals. well as there people. There are very many people in they the... They stuff people and put them in museums. <laughs> I don't know what museum you're going That's to. considered to be unethical. Wow. <laughs> uh, do you bring your kids there? Um, maybe we want to edit out the Those dioramas are made of wax, dude. <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. I've seen the movie Night at the Museum. Okay. And all the... There was Statues the- of people come alive. Back me up on this one, Nick. <laughs> this okay. was a pragmatic okay. movie. These are actual, <laughs> actual mammals that have been preserved. So, okay. So these researchers in, in Denmark at the University of Copenhagen calculated the sex ratios in two types of museum collections. Modern mammals. So those are all mammals that were gathered over the past few centuries. And then a set of brown bear and bison fossils from, that was the second collection. And these, they studied pretty major museums of natural history. So they looked at the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, London's Natural History Museum, and the Royal Ontario Museum. And for the collection of modern mammals, you know, you can actually just sex these things by looking at their genitalia, Mm. or in some cases, their antlers. With Mm. binoculars. What? You probably don't need to do that. Why for do you a, need binoculars? A so you don't have to get it close to them. You can you can you but, can do it at a distance, right? Why <laughs> well, they're in the museum. They're, they're, in the de- museum. they're dead, so they pose very little threat to you. That's They've true. Been that would be <laughs> creepy if you do it at the museum. <laughs> I thought you were talking about very small mammals, and maybe about in vivo. maybe that's necessary oh, for some. Okay. Hmm. All right, so. Pygmy shrews. Of the nineteen mammalian orders that they evaluated. Only bats and pilosa, so those are anteaters and sloths, tended to be more female in the museum collection. All of the other ones, there was a bias towards showing male animals. So collections of the hoofed mammals, armadillos, and relatives of the Tasmanian devils were particularly male-skewed. Then... For the bears and bison, they couldn't look at the genitalia because they just had the bones. So they actually used the animal's DNA for clues about sex, which is pretty cool. They found that 74% of the bison and 64% of the bears were male. And so the authors, they don't really 
they have some theories about why this might be happening. Part of it is some of the animals are donated by hunters mm-hmm. and they tend to go for the big Bigger. or show, you know, animals with manes. Yep. And, and sometimes yep. there's laws that you're not allowed to shoot female bears it, with calves. Well, and, and they cups. say it's, they um, have a quote in here where they say it's morally less icky to kill male animals than, that's actually the word they use, icky. icky. Than, than female animals. Mm. But they they make the point that it's a little strange because all of these animals had the same probability of dying. 100%. Exactly. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so it's point. a little weird. And you're just digging them up. And you're just digging them up. So it's a little strange that it would be so skewed. Even these, re- they always knew this was sort of an issue, but they were surprised at the extent. But the characteristics of these animals not being appropriately characterized as both male and female may have led us to the wrong conclusions about their wow. their biology. Interesting. Really interesting. Yep. That's very cool. Huh. Wow. I like that. I, I, I had heard, you know, in this, you know, around this general argument that, that maybe some of the sexual disequilibria are because of different behaviors. Like once adolescent bison become of sexual maturity, they're, they're kicked out of the herd. And they so do they, mention that. But, it might but, I, be, but I still don't understand, since 100% of them die, why would that affect the probability of finding a skeleton from a male or a female? I don't get that exactly. No, I, I agree. And they do mention that in the article that, you know, the, the females of many species tend to be more homebodies. And so maybe you'd be more likely to find a male by himself somewhere. But, um, but still, it seems unlikely to explain it hmm, completely. So cool. Chris, what do you got? Well, I th- this actually almost became a segment two, mm. but then I, I I was tired, and so I just decided to do it as my wacky and weird, even though it's not particularly wacky, nor weird, nor amusing, it's nor amazing. Say, it's not the wacky and weird. It's not the wacky. We and can't weird. wait to hear it. I, it's, I'm talking about Beale's list. What? Beale's list. So you all know about Beale's list. Beale, no. Jeffrey Beale is this librarian at the University of Colorado in oh. Denver who started noticing all these email solicitations for questionable looking journals. And eventually he he decided that this was the sort of nefarious byproduct of the open access publishing movement, where for those who don't remember, that the you know the the usual model where you submit a, an article to like the New England Journal and then they absorb the costs of publishing and doing the editorial work, uh, and they pay for that by uh, charging subscriptions to the journal, we flip that and we put the, the onus of paying for this on the, the authors. And But as a consequence, the, the journal will put the information that will, will basically publish this digitally online immediately without any restrictions in terms of access. And so mm-hmm. this is, seems, you know, we, we've talked about this in the past and we seem to be thinking that this is a good idea. But the downside with this is that all these, these journals then popped up into existence, seeing this as an opportunity opportunity to kind Make of rob money. the scientific endeavor blind mm-hmm. by creating really skiffy non-scientific journals with really no editorial you know work at all just so that they could extract the publication fees from unwitting scientists and so he you know he created this list back in in, in 2010 and it eventually became known as Beale's list and was circulated widely around in scientific circles yep now um, Beale got a lot of pushback from this over time because in some cases his list was was falsely impugning journals that weren't actually predatory but were just probably not very good mm-hmm. including a number that had been like brand new journals who were just kind of figuring out their right, right. how to do 
online digital publishing and weren't very good at it yet, but weren't nefarious. They were just in, you know, for that point in time, kind of rookies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they were come back in a year and actually they'd be doing a pretty good job. And so he got a lot of, of sort of pressure around this. And, and while the circumstances of, of his final decision to close Beale's list was, was not clear. Um, he did eventually close this. Now that's the sort of the first part of, of this story. What I hadn't realized is that after Beale kind of closed his list, Mm -hmm. There were a lot of academic groups who felt that he had actually provided a, you know, a solution to an unmet need about actually listing these predatory journals. And many of them took this up themselves. Mm -hmm. And so some groups actually just took Beale's original list and then reposted under a new um, website and started adding it to themselves and curating the websites. So that was very interesting. But the thing that I that sort of caught my attention and why I wanted to flag it here is is that one of these groups, which is called Cables International out of Beaumont, Texas, launched a pay-to-view blacklist of journals that it deems deceptive without providing information for how it reaches that termination. Pay-to-view. So wow. I have so to pay to see the list? You have to now pay to see the Subscribe. list of what's in and what's out. And and there are a number of journals which don't end up on the whitelist or the blacklist. The whitelist being journals that they stamp as being valid and those that, that are they deem to be invalid. So journal purgatory. So journal purgatory here out of this cables list, which in a sense... Is, is the ultimate irony because what we have here is a predatory website <laughs> to list predatory, predatory websites. Interesting. Yeah. And I just like, wow, that is so ironic. People, if there is an opportunity to make money off of something, people will make money off of it. And here it is. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's a bummer. That's a bummer. All right. Well, for mine, I... Yours has a lot of formulas well, on it. Well, as you I know, as you guys know, I treat this podcast as my form of therapy. Mm-hmm. So I just work through my you, issues. You have a magnet about that? I, I do. It's on my fridge. In particular, I find there are a lot of things that somehow I just missed in life. And I'm guessing you guys might have already known this, but I was at home the other day working on a manuscript. And suddenly it popped into my head the fact that when I was a kid, we used to go to the circus Every year when the circus would come into town. Ringling and Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Yep. And you know, the, they drive in, the clowns drive in in the clown car. And suddenly they open the door and 50 clowns come out of the same car. Mm-hmm. My assumption as a kid had always been there was a trap door in the floor of the, and that's how they got that many people. It's a TARDIS. What? It's a TARDIS. Oh, I, that's a Harry Potter reference, Doctor right? Doctor Who. Oh, sorry, Doctor Who. I was close. No, it is not. But do you know how they do it? No. I, so, okay, so now I feel a little better. I Russian, Russian, that, Russian clowns? I, like I thought Russian they dolls? were all really in there. So that is the answer to the question. <laughs> they are all really in there. So I looked up this article on the <laughs> physics of clown cars uh, by John Perley Huffman, published in 2011, in which he interviewed the director, the executive director of the International Clown Car Hall of Fame and Research Center which is uh, apparently a real thing, who says there is no trick to the clown car gag. What they do is they take a fully functioning car and they remove the entire interior of the car. So they, including the door panels, the headliner, and then they paint the windows except for a small slot for the driver to be able to see through. The driver sits on a milk crate and then they beef up the, the springs a little bit so that it doesn't sag down onto the 
wheels. And so this gentleman went ahead and did the math. Now, I think most of us know that an American standard clown stands at five feet, eight inches, and weighs 158 pounds. So that's um, one clown unit. That's according to uh, the standard clown units. <laughs> yes. Um, the offices of circus, zoos, and carnivals, that is, or possibly Wikipedia. And each clown occupies three cubic feet, assuming 15-inch width and 5-inch thickness. And the typical 20, the 2011 Ford Focus sedan has got 93.1 cubic feet. The trunk has 13.8 cubic feet. So theoretically, you could get 40 clowns to fit into a Focus. Wow. Now... If you want to get more sophisticated, though, there is an actual formula to use, and apparently the number of clowns you can get in a car depends on a mix of the clown politics, clown size, clown flexibility, clown survivability, and the critical maximum clown hilarity quotient. (laughs) And he works out all these formulas, but in layperson's terms, as he said, this boils down to somewhere between 14 and 21 clowns with their props in the typical clown car. That is so cool. I just thought you all needed to know that. That is really cool. I love that. I I, I was shocked to find out that they, they were all really in there. That kind do, of... Do you know also, Matt, since we're on the subject of clowns, not that just that, that, that they're creepy, but... <laughs> they are. Um, but, which they are. But that if you ha- if you wear clown shoes, you don't have to clip your toenails ever anymore. <laughs> I did not know that. Because they, really they just kind good, of curl up. Really good, really good point. Um, Eventually, I, they fill up the entire shoe. Can I tell you that oh, that is gross? Can I tell you that when I was in um, when that's, I was in high school, so long. when I was in high school, I had a friend who went off and got a degree from the Ringling Brothers Clown College in Minneapolis, Minnesota, somewhere. I then went off to college and met a guy who already had been to Clown College with the same guy that I knew from high school. So I knew two people who got degrees. From Clown College, I think that says more about me. How's it going for them? Anything you know? One of them is actually, to this day, a clown who is part of Clowns Without Borders. That is the thing. Is that a real thing? That is a real thing. He's been to Sudan and and a lot of different war torn areas. Anyway, that is my creep out kids around the world. (laughs) That's my story on clown. I will make no no comments. I actually think it would be a little concerned, like traumatizing, if he'd been through. A lot of trauma to then see a clown, but I, I guess you know, it works out really well. If you're doing the balloon toys things, you have to do Bactrian camels with two humps. It's much more challenging. Mm, good point. <laughs> anyway, that is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want us to uh, take on a particular topic or a study, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthex or me at, at @profmatfox or Chris, who doesn't ever check his, at, at id.gill. Or Jen at, at Jennifer R. Ryder. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthdx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound, editing, and being the grown up in the room. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. Do, 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 do. Good.